You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Father, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us as we give attention to your Word, your living truth for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. When we come to Acts chapter 6, now starting at verse 8, we remember that in the first part of Acts chapter 6, we were introduced to a group of men, seven men who were chosen from the congregation to meet a specific need. The need was that it was believed that there were certain widows among that early Christian group that were being neglected in the church's charitable giving. And just so there wouldn't be any uh, overlooking of these particular widows and their needs, seven men were particularly chosen by the congregation, approved by the apostles, and sent out to do this work of meeting the practical needs of these widows. Well, we were introduced to a list of seven men. And the first man listed in that list was a man named Stephen. His name is mentioned in verse 5 for the first time. Now, following from now in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6 all the way to the end of chapter 7, we're going to know a lot about Stephen because he was a remarkable man and he holds a singular honor in the halls of God's work throughout redemptive history. He was the first martyr among the early Christians. We're going to be talking about that in coming weeks as we talk about Acts chapter 7. But but here we're going to see how Stephen got into this hot water, taking a look beginning at verse 8, where we read, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You know, one of the interesting themes throughout the book of Acts as we've been making our way through it chapter by chapter is we've seen that this glorious work of God that's happening, and you would have to say it's glorious, right? People's lives are being changed. People are coming to a living, saving, active faith in Jesus Christ. Their relationship with God is being renewed and they're filled with a, with a heart, with a passion to spread this message everywhere they can. We look at it in those terms and it looks like it's only good. Who could say anything against this? Who could take a look at this early move of Christians and say, well, that's a bad thing. They need to stop this. Nevertheless, we are surprised to find in the pages of Scripture that it was opposed that there were people who took a look at what was happening among these early Christians. That this is a bad thing and we have to stop it. And when you hear that, you sort of shake your head. You say, why the pushback? Why the opposition? Well, you know, there were many reasons for it. And I'll be mentioning some of them as we make our way through the text today. But on the surface, it just seems strange. This is a good thing. This is a group of people saying we have to love and forgive one another. We have to do good works to people all around us. We we, we need to be charitable and helpful towards others in need. You would take a look at a movement like this and say, what's to hate about it? What's to oppose about it? Nevertheless, the opposition was raised. And we see it here in these first few verses where Stephen, in verse 8, it says that he was full of faith and power and he did great wonders and signs among the people. 
I find that to be remarkable. That God used this man, Stephen. Not only was God using the apostles to do great wonders and signs, but now God was using other people like Stephen, one of the servants who was chosen to help these needy widows. God used Stephen because he was full of faith and power. Now, there's a very interesting point here. Stephen, it says very plainly, you could look at it again in verse 8, Stephen did great wonders and signs among the people. Emphasize it in your minds. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve who followed Jesus all around Galilee and into Jerusalem. He was a man chosen after. You could say this, that in some sense, and I know we're talking about really a matter of months, not years or anything, but you could say in some sense he's a second-generation Christian, right? Those people who originally followed Jesus around during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Stephen was not one of those. He was not that first generation. He was a second-generation Christian. Nevertheless, God used him to do great wonders and signs. Now look, let's be honest, as we look at the text, we don't know what these great wonders and signs were. Yet we can say with near certainty that they weren't magicians' tricks. Right, Stephen wasn't in there just doing things to blow people's minds, right? Uh, I'll create a bird out of a clay bird and watch it fly away as I clap my hands. You know, it wasn't like a magician doing his thing. If we know anything from the pattern of the biblical picture given to us of these wonders and great signs, what we simply have here are, are examples of the compassion of God expressed in miraculous ways. You have sicknesses being healed. You have poverty relieved. You have demonic oppression loosed. These weren't just fireworks to impress people. These were things that met the needs of real needy people in a compassionate context. Now, everybody knows, or at least I hope you know, that Jesus did such miraculous things. And some people would say, well, that's different. That's Jesus. Of course he did them. Jesus had to do those so that he could prove that he was the Messiah. That's why Jesus did those kind of miracles. And then many other people also know that the apostles, those very first generation Christians, that they did amazing, miraculous things. But some people say of them, well, of course, that's different. They were the apostles. They had to prove that they carried on the ministry of Jesus and that they really had the authority to bring forth the New Testament. That's why they did those miracles as a badge or a credential. Now, if you were to grant that that's why Jesus did his miracles and that's why the apostles did their miracles, I would just simply ask, then why did Stephen do those miracles? He never wrote anything of the New Testament. He wasn't an apostle that needed to be credentialed. How do we explain the fact that Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people? He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't even an apostle. He was, in fact... An administrator. He was a bookkeeper, an organizer. He cared for the widows among the early Christians. He never wrote a book of the Bible, and he never needed any special miraculous authentication to keep the books of the charity fund to the early widows. You see, what this shows us is something very powerful. This shows us that God is still interested in doing the miraculous. 
And I want you to know, I believe that with all my heart. Sometimes it's hard to believe in a world that seems to be filled with the fake and the phony that surrounds the so-called miraculous. And when people see things like that, it turns them off, right? When you see a man who's a charlatan, who does things purely to gain attention or glory or credit unto himself, when he's doing things that are demonstrably fake or phony, it makes you say, well, it's all fake and phony. Friends, I'll tell you, it's not all fake and phony. Our God is a miracle-working God, and He's still interested in the miraculous today. That interest did not die out with Jesus or the apostles. Now, I cannot explain, and I'm going to say, presumably, I don't think there's anybody here this morning who can explain why sometimes God does grant a miracle and why he does not grant a miracle in another situation. We don't know why sometimes God uses a human agency and why other times God does not use a human agency. But we know this, that God still does miracles. Now, he did them through the hands of Stephen. And if you notice this, it says something else in verse 8. It says that Stephen connected with these great wonders and signs that he did among the people, that he was full of faith and power. Now, I want to emphasize this, faith and power, because in some Bibles, there's a little bit of a dispute there. I don't know what translation that you have in front of you. I have the New King James Version in front of me. I think that there's other good Bible translations out there, but for a variety of reasons, I prefer the New King James. But there's some other Bible translators that don't say faith and power. They say grace and power. And there's some debate as to whether or not the original text that Luke wrote was either faith and power or grace and power. Well, can I just say that the meaning is substantially the same? Because to live in faith is to walk in God's grace. We're not talking about two contradictory meanings. We're certainly not talking about the kind of thing that affects any kind of doctrine or understanding. No, not in any means. But there's a clear connection between these things and the remarkable ministry that Stephen had. He had faith in the Lord, right? Or you could say grace. And he had power in God. Can I just say that those things are vitally connected? God wants us to be people of faith And I'll say grace. You could put the two of them together. Faith and grace. And he wants us to be people of power. There's a clear connection between what Stephen did in ministry and those particular things. Now, if I could just touch on one word there for a moment. And and let's just assume, just for the sake of of what I want to point and get across right now, that what Stephen really said there, it says about Stephen, was that he was filled with grace. I think this is one of the reasons why... Christianity is opposed because Christianity is a religion of grace. You say, well, who would oppose grace? Who's anti-grace? Who's going to sign the anti-grace petition that you pass around? Listen, let me tell you something. There is something deep within the human heart that doesn't want the grace of God. Do you know why? Because the grace of God refuses to look at what you have earned or according to what you have deserved. And there are a lot of people who want to be right with God. That's important to them on some level. 
But this is how it works in their mind. They say, I want to be right with God the old-fashioned way. I want to earn my right standing with God. And that's very important to them. I want to stand on my own two feet. I'll make my own way. I don't need charity. I don't need charity from God. I don't need charity from anybody. Can I tell you? That's the mindset that is opposed to the grace of God. The grace of God comes to us and it says, you have to give up trying to make yourself right with God and you have to humbly receive His grace. Grace is opposed to pride. And you know very well that sometimes religious people are the very worst in the pride department. Well, this is why true Christianity is often opposed. Because it won't look to how wonderful you are. It exalts how wonderful God is. And that's one of the reasons why we find this opposition against something as good as the gospel that the early Christians preached. Well, there they were. Verse 9 tells us that there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, and they were disputing with Stephen. But isn't it wonderful? Stephen being empowered by the Holy Spirit, verse 10 tells us that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You know, there's no indication that Stephen in and of himself was smarter or better or or more educated or was a better debater than these opponents of his. No, we would attribute his upper hand in this debate to the spirit by which he spoke. He was a man who was filled with the spirit of God. And that gave him a wisdom. It gave him a discernment and it gave him a grace in the way that he spoke. And I don't know about you, but I read that, especially I read verse 10 and see that he's so filled with the spirit. And that's something that nobody could oppose. I read that. and I say, I want some of that. Don't you? Don't you want to have the spirit of God fill your life in such a profound way that, that you could do what Stephen did right here? Well, let me tell you, I I could tell you several ways that the Spirit comes and fills our life. But I do just want to point a finger at one particular way. I believe that the Spirit of God fills our life in a special way when we get out and experience what God is doing out in the community. I'll put it this way. If you want to experience the work of the Spirit, the key is in doing the kind of stuff that Stephen did. Go out there and do something for Jesus. Don't wait. Can I say this? Don't wait until you stop being afraid to do something for Jesus. I remember not long ago, I had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Danson in our congregation, right? Now, I, I know a few people who are just more wonderful personal evangelists with Dr. Danson than, than, than Dr. Danson. It's just wonderful how he so freely and wonderful shares Jesus and his message with many people. And we were talking about this, and, and I was surprised to find as we talked in the conversation that he still gets afraid when he shares Christ with people. I thought, now you've got to be kidding me. Not Dr. Dance. Anybody but him. And what we kind of came to as we discussed this is this is a huge hang-up for a lot of people. They're waiting until they stop feeling afraid to talk to somebody about Jesus. Well, you know what? If you wait for that, you might be waiting forever. You feel a little bit afraid? Still talk to them about Jesus. And can I just say, talk to them naturally. Talk to them beautifully. Please don't go to them and just scream John 3.16 in their face. How about this one? 
Have a normal conversation where you talk about something good that Jesus has done in your life. And then tell them the great thing that Jesus did for you and for them on the cross. How beautiful is that? And I think we make it so weird and so unnatural sometimes. And we wait for the fear to go away before we look. Just do it despite whatever fear you may have. And you'll see how God uses it beautifully. And you'll see how the Spirit of God comes and fills your life at that opportune moment. Well, one other thing I want you to see before we move on to verse 11. It mentions there in verse 9 that some of those of this synagogue were from Cilicia. Now, that might not mean anything to you. Cilicia was a region in the ancient world, but there's a particular city in Cilicia that those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you might have heard something about. Cilicia was a region, and one of the notable cities in Cilicia was a city called Tarsus. And we think of a man named Saul of Tarsus. And if some of these Jewish debaters with Stephen were from Cilicia, Paul was from the region, or Saul was from the region of Cilicia. He may very well, almost certainly, he was one of these debating with Stephen and getting very frustrated because of the great wisdom that he showed. All right, now verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Wow. There's Stephen doing his work and glorifying God. He's in the midst of debates with theological and practical opponents of those works of the early Christians. And finally it comes to the place where the people that are opposing him are so frustrated by the fact that that Stephen, because of the wisdom that the Spirit of God gives him, is winning these debates. That they had to lie about him in order to pin something evil on him. Look at what it says there in verse 11. They secretly induced men to say... The opponents of Stephen could not win a fair fight, so they used lies, they used secret strategies to shape popular opinion against Stephen. Now, I think it's fascinating that normally Luke wouldn't know what the opponents of Stephen secretly induced men to say. Wouldn't it be probable that a man named Saul of Tarsus was among these opponents and told Luke all about it later on? But what did they do? Verse 12 tells us that they stirred up the people. Now, this was a very interesting phenomenon because previously in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 47, and in chapter 5, verse 26, it tells us that at this time, the early Christians had a great deal of popularity among the masses. The average person in Jerusalem loved these Christians. I mean, they loved what God was doing in their life. They were very popular among the masses. They were very unpopular among the religious leaders. I don't know if you remember, but back in Acts chapter 5, the religious leaders wanted to lay hands on them and arrest them and treat them very roughly, but they held back because they knew that the apostles and the early Christians were so popular with the common people. So they held back. But you see what they're doing now in verse 12? 
They stirred up the people because the opponents of Stephen could do nothing against the followers of Jesus until they got popular opinion on their side. Uh, Previously, all that persecution against the apostles was limited because popular opinion was with the early Christians and not against them. It just goes to show us how popular opinion can be very easily shaped, can it not? You see, the same crowds that praised Jesus when he came in on Palm Sunday were some of the same crowds that shouted, crucify him just less than a week later. The the crowds that loved the apostles at Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and Acts chapter 5, verse 26, were the same crowds that cried out against Stephen. Can I say, and this is why we should never let popular opinion shape the vision or the focus of God's people. But we should let it rest on God's eternal word. Sometimes saddens me when I see Christian movements that seem to look to the world to set their agenda. Whatever seems to be popular with the world at this time, whatever the fad is, whatever the custom is, the the, the church kind of hops along and says, yeah, we're interested in that too. That's important to us too. Now, again, maybe some of those things certainly do coincide and overlap, but we should let God set our agenda. You see, we want to speak to popular opinion, not just speak from popular opinion. And we want to speak to popular opinion to eternal truth. To to use an illustration that you've probably heard before, we, we want to be like thermostats, those that affect the temperature of the room, right? rather than being like thermometers, those that merely reflect the temperature of the room. And there's a big difference between the two. In any regard, these men, they stirred up the people, and once popular opinion was against Stephen and against some of those early Christians, then they could lie in this very way. Verse 11, look at some of the lies. Verse 11, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That was a lie. Verse 13, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. They're referring to the temple and the law. That's a lie. Uh, Verse 14, he said that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change customs. That was a lie. You see, these were the accusations made against Stephen. I find it fascinating that many of the same accusations were made against Jesus himself. And I think all in all, don't you think it's a good thing to be accused of the same things that Jesus was accused of? That's exactly where Stephen was at. They they, they accused Jesus of wanting to be something like a terrorist and wanting to destroy the temple. Because Jesus said this, if you destroy this temple of my body, I'll raise it up in three days again. And they twisted and distorted his words and brought it back to say that Jesus said that he would destroy the temple. You see, I think they could accuse Stephen of these things because Stephen was teaching some very important truths in his debates with these Jewish people. He taught that Jesus was greater than Moses, which he is. But they twisted that, verse 11, into blasphemous words against Moses. Stephen wasn't blaspheming Moses. He honored Moses, an important man in God's redemptive plan. But he said Jesus is greater than Moses. He taught them that Jesus was God, which he is. But they twisted that, verse 11, saying that he spoke blasphemous words against God. 
Stephen taught them that Jesus was greater than the temple, and he is greater than the temple. But they charged him, verse 13, with blasphemous words against this holy place. Stephen taught them that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. But they twisted it, verse 13, and said that he spoke blasphemous words against this law. Then finally, Stephen taught them that Jesus was greater than their religious customs and traditions. By the way, that's something we all need to hear, right? Jesus is greater than our religious customs and traditions. But they twisted that, verse 14. They said, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change customs. You see, of course, Stephen never taught against Moses. He never taught against God. But his glorification of Jesus was twisted. He never spoke blasphemous words against the temple, but he would not make it an idol as many Jewish people of that generation did. Stephen had his own words twisted, and they brought those as accusations against him. You know, I see some of the same thing happening in the world today when it comes to the way that the church interacts with the world. Isn't it frustrating to see our words twisted and brought against us? It's interesting to see in the wider culture how many people genuinely think that Christians are hateful, bigoted, horrible people. That's a very common idea. And, and you know, I don't know, maybe you're a guest here this morning. Maybe you're not a normal part of this congregation. Maybe somebody, so to speak, dragged you to church. Maybe they literally dragged you to church. I really don't know. (laughs) And you have a very wary eye here this morning. You're you're wondering about these hateful, bigoted people that get together and believe the Bible and follow Jesus and all of that stuff. And if that's how you feel, listen, I'm not here to condemn you. Uh, There's a sense, and I'll just say a sense, in which I sympathize with you. You know, the media loves to find the few hateful, self-proclaimed Christians and to give them as much publicity as possible. Don't we see that? Don't we see the truth that, and just to use an illustration from, you know, uh, uh, the, the comedy, that you, you could have Christians doing a thousand gloriously good works all over the country And then one guy says he's going to burn a Koran and the whole media gets focused upon him, right? I don't blame you. I don't blame you for hearing and responding to the media narrative and saying, well, you know what, maybe those Christians really are hateful, horrible, bigoted people. And from the perspective of the media business, it makes sense for them to do it. It's the media business. They're there to sell newspapers or advertising time or whatever it is. But it's still unfair because it's not true. And if you've never really interacted with Christian people who love God and love their neighbors, I don't blame you for for being suspicious of Christians. We have to say this as believers, and we see how we are so often misrepresented in the media, in the world. We we do what we can to fight against this, do we not? We we do with whatever God gives us at our hand to love one another and to show the kind of respect and tolerance towards other people that we would expect them to show towards us in the community in which we live. Nevertheless, there's a limit to what we can do, right? 
And as Christians, sometimes we just have to endure this and recognize that even as they spoke ill of Jesus, unjustifiably so, even as they spoke ill of Stephen, unjustifiably so, so sometimes they will speak evil of us, unjustifiably so. Can I say this? So I just want to give you a solemn charge, a solemn instruction. You just make sure that it's unjustified in your life, right? That whatever anybody would say about you or say that Christians are hateful or or bigoted or, or whatever, you make sure that that's not true of you and that that is unjustifiably said in your life. Well, it was... Uh, no doubt very frustrating, very vexing for Stephen to hear these words. C- can you imagine what it is? I'm sure that you've probably been in a situation like that where you've got to sit down and hear people say lies about you, misrepresent and twist your words. I can only imagine that if Stephen sat there before that council on trial, that that, that same council that condemned Jesus to the cross, that, that that same council that had been attacking the apostles so vigorously, that, that he felt that he was intimidated, that he felt that, that, that there was something very wrong. Who knows how this might end? But then we read verse 15. Look at Stephen's countenance. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Does the movie play in your mind? Can you picture this scene? Stephen was on trial before the highest religious court he could face. And he was being examined by honored and educated and powerful men. And he had been falsely accused and seemed to have lost popular support. Yet he never lost his nerve or his peace because he trusted in God. And as those men looked upon Stephen, they didn't see a man filled with fear. They didn't see a man filled with anxiety. But as God so often does, in that critical moment, God gave special grace to Stephen and his face shone like the face of an angel. Now don't think that he had that mild, soft, angelic, chubby baby look that you think of a classical angel, right? No, 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 no. Nor was it a look of stern judgment and wrath. His eyes weren't filled with fire and his lips pressed together like, ooh, I'm going to give it to you guys. No, his face reflected the perfect peace and confidence that the angels in heaven have as they surround the throne of God. His face reflected the same glory that Moses had as Moses spent intimate time with God. This is the kind of idea that Stephen had here. He had the face of an angel. He was at perfect peace. His face wasn't filled with terror or with fear because he knew that his life was in God's hands and he knew that Jesus never forsakes his people. And Jesus was not going to forsake Stephen. I'm afraid I have to break it off here. We'll get to the very exciting story as we continue on in Acts chapter 7 next time. But, but I don't mind telling you that it doesn't end well in one respect for Stephen. He doesn't get out of this alive. But Jesus never forsook him. Matter of fact, I would say that Jesus was nearer to his precious servant Stephen than ever before. I mean, if you think about it, think of all that Stephen shared with Jesus at this moment. 
I mean, we saw in verse 8 that Stephen was full of faith or grace, whichever one you want to say. Was not Jesus filled with faith and grace? We also saw in verse 8 that Stephen was filled with power. Was not Jesus filled with power? We saw there in verse 8 as well that Stephen did great wonders and signs among the people. That speaks of his great, generous, compassionate heart. And did not Jesus have a great, generous, compassionate heart? Verse 10 tells us that he was filled with wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Was not Jesus filled with wisdom? Uh, Verse 10 also tells us that he was filled with the spirit and Jesus Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And then verse 13 tells us that he faced false accusations and did not Jesus also stand on trial where he had to endure false accusations. You see, at this moment, that looks so difficult, so dicey, if I could use that word, in Stephen's life, Jesus was very near to his servant. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Don't you want Jesus to be very near to you? Don't you want your face to shine with the radiance of an angel? Wouldn't that be great? Reminds me of an old story that Charles Spurgeon used to tell to the men that he would educate as preachers. To his young preachers, he would say, Listen, whenever you speak about heaven, let your face shine with the glory of the angels. Let people see heaven on your face and in your countenance. And then he said, and when you preach on hell, then your everyday face will do just fine. (laughs) Well, listen, there's Stephen, this follower of Jesus, so closely associated with him. Faith, power, compassion, grace, suffering with Jesus. And it just calls us to mind that if you, if you want to be a follower of Jesus... And I mean that in the sense you you see yourself as a follower of Jesus. You want to be associated with him. You're not the kind of person where you're trying to put more distance between you and Jesus. You're trying to put less distance, right? You want to be associated with him. You want to be a follower of him. Great. Wonderful. I would hope that everybody in this room would want that for their lives. But just remember that there's a cost connected to that. And can I tell you, don't despise the cost. Stephen wasn't there shining like an angel thinking, oh, this is terrible. He was saying, oh, this is glorious that I can be associated with Jesus even in this situation. You see, the cost that is involved in being a follower of Jesus, that's not a flaw in the system. It's a deliberate part of the design. It's part of associating yourself with Jesus. Let me close with just a look at one verse here. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians chapter 3 in the context is glorious. Paul is speaking about his great desire to know Jesus and to be conformed into his image. And he comes out with this beautiful statement. He says, that I may know him. And our hearts just, you know, yes, I want to know him too. That I may know him. And then Paul goes a little deeper. And he says, that I may know the power of his resurrection. And we're all saying, amen. Oh, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Yes, Lord, that's exactly what I want. And then do you know what Paul says next in Philippians 3.10? The next line is this. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. There's some of you. You're, 
You're knowing God right now in the fellowship of his sufferings. You thought that that was a flaw in the design. No, it's part of the design. Because knowing Jesus is so worth it. Living with him, loving him, having your life connected with his is so worth it that it's worth it to be associated with him in his sufferings. I I just have a sense that this morning, there's no doubt a few people, maybe more than a few, you're, you're going through it. You're in that position of being the fellowship of sufferings. You, you need to stop just suffering. And you need to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what God has for you this morning. And your face can shine like an angel, even in the midst of that. Because that's how great our Savior Jesus is.